Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. We are continuing to go through an atypical Christmas, um, not necessarily focusing solely on the things that we see, but the things that are revealed in Scripture that are very much the full Christmas story. And Christmas, or the Incarnation, was a declaration of war on all God's enemies. When we go back to the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, we go back and, and what, what we see again is that in the garden after sin entered the world because of the choices that Adam and Eve made, that God looked at them and looked at the serpent and he said that through the woman there will be a seed and that seed will be your terror and you will bruise his heel and he'll crush your head. But as God declared that, that thing there in, in the garden, he, he wasn't just talking about that first woman or first man, that their baby will be something special, but he said that he was saying in that moment that, that he is calling out a people who will be set apart and made holy and that God will bring this Messiah through that seed of the woman, the woman he creates and that Messiah will, will be born, that Messiah will come and he will give his life and it will seem like he's defeated, but he will raise again and ascend to the right hand of God. And then he will return again for God's people because God loves and wants to redeem his image bearers. So Christmas is really the moment that, that, that we get to see that happening that we get to see that plan being, being brought out. You see, this was actually God keeping his promise to ransom captive Israel. In songs we sing and words we say oftentimes are, are, are contained, but they're much bigger than that. They, they give us a much larger picture of what's actually going on. And so Christmas is so much bigger, and we know this, but I don't know how often we really live it because we get so caught up. But Christmas is much bigger than presents and decoration and office lunches and after hours parties. It is the definitive execution of God's plan to love and redeem all of humanity, those who will respond to his offer of forgiveness. So in Revelation 12, we pick up in our study if, uh, if you haven't been with us the last couple weeks, then this uh, might feel jarring, but, but we're in Revelation chapter 12, and we're looking at Christmas through a, a bigger cosmic perspective, the full story of Christmas. And, and so last week we left off with, with the woman who was clothed in splendor and, and the dragon who was waiting to devour the child that she, she bore and, and, in, in the story, and all of those things were happening. Those things are parallel with the birth, the nativity story. Those things are all happening in, in that time. But as we get to, get to verse seven, 
the, the, the vision that John has skips over a bit, skips over the life and ministry of Jesus, his death, resurrection, and his ascension, and now it picks up. And it says in verse seven, now war arose in heaven. And, and this isn't necessarily a specifically pointed time. It doesn't say exactly in the, in the vision that John has. It doesn't say, now this happens at this moment. Now there's a decent amount of scripture that, that seems to, does point Pretty, pretty solidly at a particular point in history. But there's some options that people have come up with. One, people have thought, some have thought that uh, this war that arose in heaven was the initial battle and fall of Lucifer. Not a lot of biblical evidence for that. That's kind of a, a, a fringe idea. Not necessarily a lot of support in scripture. Another idea is that this war that's described in Revelation 12 was when Jesus had his earthly ministry. Again, um, not a ton of scriptural evidence that that was the timing. So there's a few options and, and, and I share those because it's important to understand that, that while maybe everyone doesn't agree on the timing, there is something that we can all agree with all absolute understanding. Um, and I'll share that in a minute, but, but, but really the other probably the, the option that is most supported by scripture and, and seems to be the moment of, of this war that arose in heaven is at kind of the midpoint of the great tribulation, which was future for John and future for us because that hasn't happened yet. The idea that, that roughly three and a half years in, um, at the end of the age, during that, that seven-year tribulation that there's this war that, are, that arises in heaven. And what we see in Scripture is that at this time, there will be an, an unbelievable outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And, and what we'll see, what we would experience if we are here at that time, is that outpouring of the Holy Spirit will result in, in bringing us endurance, an incredible endurance for the difficulty that lies ahead and endurance to hang on. And sometimes we wonder, how can, anyone, how can anyone live through times that are coming? Sometimes we, we look at today and we say, well, this is such an extraordinary, difficult time we live in. I think if you ask people in the Roman world, they'd say the same thing. <laughs> but what we do know is God says, there is a time coming that's gonna be really, really difficult. How would we survive that? It's because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit who gives us endurance and the ability to endure. Also, it will be an outpouring of grace for God's people to not only endure, but to also be people who, through the word of their testimony, draw others to Christ. And, and, and finally, it will be a time of power for that witnessing, for us to be consistent in our witness. And, and so, as, I, as I've kind of looked at this and, and, and seen, I, I think this war in heaven that we're talking about in Revelation 12 is, is something that we haven't gotten to yet. It correlates with Daniel chapter eight, where Daniel has this vision and it's very similar to, to, to what we are reading in, in Revelation 12. And it talks about this, this deceiver and, 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 and this, this battle and, and, and stars being wiped out of heaven and that kind of thing. And, and so... And so really what, what we see, this connection of Daniel, Daniel 8 and, and Romans 12, what happens here is accomplished by the advent of Christmas. Christmas is that thing that sparks all of this. And what we know for sure though, regardless of where we land on 
whether or not this war in heaven has happened or it's coming, the thing that we know for sure is that the result of this cosmic conflict is the defeat of the dragon and the ultimate victory of God. That in no version of this story, regardless of timeline, does the dragon come out victorious. God conquers all, period. So it says, now a war rose in heaven. And then, and then it goes on, John goes on and he describes, he says, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Michael and his angels so again, as we see Christmas from this perspective, this bigger cosmic perspective, there's this war that's battling, that's going on, and it is a war that is fought in the spiritual realm. And John says that this war broke out and he saw Michael and his angels, the army of God fighting against the dragon. We meet Michael in Daniel chapter 10. It says this, it says, Daniel has been praying to God that that he has some questions about Israel and God's people and their future. And so Daniel's been praying and, and he's waiting for an answer. And so then Gabriel, one of the angels comes to Daniel in Daniel chapter 10 and he says to Daniel, fear not Daniel for from the first day that you set your heart to understanding and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. Just. Make a mental note of that. Why did Gabriel, an angel, come to Daniel? Because Daniel prayed. Put kind of a little mental highlight on that, that Daniel's prayers resulted in a visitation of a spiritual being with a word directly from God's throne. He says, I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And the prince of the kingdom of Persia is not a human king. It is a spiritual being who has fought in the rebellion against God, who apparently in, in scripture describes this, this spiritual being as one who has power and authority in that region, in that area. And so Gabriel was coming to give Daniel the answer from God and the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood him and held him off for almost a month. That there is a spiritual battling going on because of Daniel's prayer. And then, and then it says, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to you to, to make un you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. It's interesting, and, and I love, one of the things that I love about, for me, that's significant about this, this passage is uh, not long ago, I was in Iraqi Kurdistan, and the area that I was in is the same historical area that Daniel was in exile. And that looking at that area of the globe, you see a lot of deception and a lot of deception and a lot of manipulation still today the prince of the kingdom of persia is still working and active in that area influencing people who are slaves to sin and deceived by the enemy and believe themselves to be 
greater than God and God's plan for the world. And it was interesting being there in that moment and thinking about this scripture and thinking about what's going on behind the scenes. Because you see, I think it's so easy for us to miss what's actually happening that God actually reveals to us so clearly. That, that those who are doing sometimes unspeakable evil are not doing that just on their own. They're slaves to sin and in their arrogance, they do awful things. But here's the deal. They're image bearers whom God loves and has sacrificed his son for. And they're under the influence of these powers and these principalities and these beings and they're living their sinful, slave-driven life out as it is. So we have to be careful not to demonize people who bear God's image and God wants to be part of his family even though they reject him over and over and over again. And, and, so, and so we see this thing happen there. And, and then in Daniel 12, the angel says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book you see, Michael actually on the scene in Revelation 12 is, one of his roles is he is the guardian protector of God's people. He fights on behalf of Yahweh against those who have rebelled against God in the spiritual realm, in the cosmos, in the, in the, in the, in, in the cosmic heavens. And, and what's interesting about that is, is just let's remember that all of God's enemies are not united together they're simply united because they want what God has. Because unity is a mark of those in God's family, not of those outside of God's family. And, and, so, and so we see in this passage, it says, so Michael and his angels came and fought the dragon. And then, and then it goes on and scripture says, in this vision that John has, it says, but... It says, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the dragon, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And so we see the, 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 the very summary conclusion to this war that broke out in heaven is that the dragon comes and all of the armies that are also against God and rebelling against God and his rule and his sovereignty, it says that, that they come and fight, but Michael and the armies of God fight against him. And there's two things that's, that this scripture says that happens. One, the dragon is defeated by God's armies. Two, it says that the dragon is dismissed from the presence of God. He's defeated and he's dismissed. That is a sure thing. 
If you go back to Job chapter one, we, we see something interesting because in that story of, of what happened to Job, in chapter one, it says in verse six, it says that the sons of God came and presented themselves to God the Father. And it says that Satan also came and he was going throughout the earth looking for whom he could accuse. Interesting, again, the dragon really only has one activity. <laughs> and that is to devour and to accuse. And so he comes and he, and he, and he wants to accuse people and, and prove God to be not as great and sovereign as he is. And, and, and so somehow he had audience with the God of the universe. But here in this passage, it says that there will come a time when he is defeated and he is dismissed. He no longer has the opportunity to stand before God and spout his lies because of what God does. And then there's this characterization of the enemy. John uses a number of titles for the enemy. He says, the great dragon, don't wanna get that confused with like Puff the magic dragon, not a nice dragon, and, and, and so he's a great dragon because it, it characterizes his ferocity and his terror that he brings. It calls him the ancient serpent. Again, for me and my history, not Serpentor from G.I. Joe, but the ancient serpent much further than, than that. And it connects the ancient serpent with that serpent in Genesis 3. I think it's interesting that that both Jesus and Satan are called ancient, but one is called the ancient serpent and one is called the ancient of days. It's a big distinction between the two. <laughs> one preexisted, one is uncreated, one is holy and one is not. Then it calls him the devil, which actually means accuser or slanderer. And then it gives a, a, a personal title, Satan which literally means the adversary or the enemy. Jesus describes the enemy again to his disciples in John chapter eight, as he's dealing with the religious leaders who are not actually surrendered to God and his kingdom as they build their own kingdoms. And Jesus says to them in John 8, 44, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Listen to how he describes the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so Jesus even describes all of these things that we hear in John, in, in Revelation chapter 12. And even with this characterization that this huge red powerful dragon, this ancient serpent, the devil Satan, even with all of those things, he's a defeated foe and he cannot win. So what does this mean for us? What is the, the fact that, that God has revealed this battle that will happen? The dragon and his angels will be defeated and they'll be dismissed. What does this mean for us? How do we take this? What is this how does this help us as we navigate the world in which we live? 
Paul writes in Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. I feel like today we almost need to uh, have that highlighted and bold in all caps. <laughs> For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. See, the Bible is very clear about our situation and the reality of that which is around us. Our battle is a spiritual battle that has been happening since the beginning of humanity. In fact, it was happening prior to that. And the thing that we have to wrap our heads around that for me holds a ton of tension because it's really hard to see this is that what we see in the physical world, the things that we see happening, whether it's laws or whether it's politics, whether it's behavior, whether it's morality, those are all symptoms. They're not the underlying problem causing those symptoms. Because the thing that lies beneath is spiritual. Think for a second and just, just think about this. Um, we've, all, we've all probably had a headache before. But imagine for a second that if you, you started getting a headache and you had a headache every day and, and it wasn't because you didn't get your like caffeine from coffee in the morning, but, but you were getting this headache. And so what do we do with headaches? We, we take pain reliever. You take ibuprofen or acetaminophen or whatever your flavor is. And, and so every day you are taking some aspirin or, or pain reliever to take care of your headache. And, and so for a while, your headache would go away after you take that pain reliever and really, we kind of forget about our headache and any problems while we don't feel it. But then it comes back and it keeps coming back day after day after day after day. And eventually, somebody convinces you that, that pounding ibuprofen every day, all day, is not the best way to live long life. And so you decide you're going to go to the doctor and you're going to have them check you out. And they do, they do a brain scan. I know I'm skipping a lot of paperwork, but they do a brain scan and because it's that easy, you just go in and you're like, hey, I want a brain scan. They're like, sure. And so it works super easy like that. And so um, you go in and they do a brain scan and they find that you have a massive tumor in your brain. And then they're like, well, yeah, just take, keep taking ibuprofen. That should work. No, that's not what they do. Because the headache is simply a symptom of something that's happening that you can't see. And all that you're doing, you're not getting better when you take pain reliever. You're just covering up the symptoms so that you don't experience them anymore, even though the thing that is hidden and inside and invisible is still there. It is so easy for us, church. It's so easy for us to settle for pain reliever and cover the symptoms of what's going on in the world around us and not 
recognizing and holding on to and fighting the real battle that God gives us spiritual weapons to fight and we just put band-aids and pain reliever of these physical weapons and ways of the world to just get rid of the symptoms. It seems like oftentimes I might be satisfied with getting rid of the symptoms that I don't like and then living distanced from Jesus. And I know this is hard to hear sometimes. But getting people to ascribe to a particular morality or voting a certain person into office or passing a certain law is simply medicating the symptoms. It doesn't change anything. It's putting a Band-Aid on a severed limb because our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and cosmic spiritual beings in the heavenlies. And, and, and so we must fight with spiritual weapons and spiritual power that God gives us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Don't use a pain reliever to make yourself feel better. And I know it, it works, doesn't it? Ibuprofen gets rid of my headache when I don't have a Mountain Dew. <laughs> In the same way, doing something to see someone change on the outside feels good. But is that actually taking care of the thing that's underneath? See, in order to defeat and defend against spiritual powers, we must use spiritual weapons. And the great news is that God has given us all that we need. I've been fighting this battle since I was six years old. Actually, I was five when I became a Christian. So maybe when I was five. But here's the thing, and we've talked about this earlier in the year. We talked about intimacy with Jesus. What are pathways to intimacy? Here's the good news. Those same pathways of intimacies is also the weapons that God has given us to fight this battle. Not to just cover the symptoms, but to actually change the things that are inside. Meditating on scripture, knowing God's word and what it says and obeying it. Not just knowing what it says, but actually obeying God's word. That's a weapon we use. That is a weapon that is used against the enemy that he cannot stand against. Daniel prayed to the most high God and God sent him an angel who battled his way to give Daniel an answer. And I know probably everyone in church would say, oh, I believe in the power of prayer, but do we? Do we really believe that prayer is the most powerful way to use our speech? Because it is. Bar none. And the beauty about the weapon of prayer is that it can be used by anyone, no matter where they are. You can be stuck alone, isolated in a prison cell. 
You can be in a, in a bed stuck in a hospital room. You can be out driving your car and you can use your words in prayer. And that is an incredibly powerful weapon that God has given us. We've talked about fasting. And unfortunately, probably for a lot of us, fasting is a, is a weapon that God has given us that we have not used very much. <laughs> Again, in Daniel, it says that Daniel and his partners fasted for 10 days and then God did. Oftentimes what we see in scripture is that fasting is this incredible weapon that God uses to move his kingdom forward. And that is, we have that. We have that available to us. And I realize that, well, if I'm not eating, it feels like I'm getting weaker, which is exactly how God's work, because in our weakness, God's strength can be found and can be made visible. Generosity, giving. Do you realize that giving, generosity, sacrificial giving is a way that God moves his kingdom forward and claims land that the enemy thinks is his. That we use our resources for God's kingdom. To move people who are far from Jesus toward him. You know, something else that is a weapon that God has given his family that the enemy does not have is that of unity. And it's interesting. It is so much easier for me to make a statement or cast a vote than it is for me to actually be unified with brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that's hard. But that is the thing that characterizes God's people. And that is a weapon that the world cannot withstand. Listen to what Jesus himself says in John 17. We've read this numerous times. I don't know that we can read it too much. Jesus prays, he says, I do not ask for these only speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So those of us who've read the word of God and, and who have come to Christ, he's talking about us. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Why is, is, why is unity so important in the body of Christ? Why is it so significant? It's because of this one fact. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world, see, that's, that's not a symptom. Unbelief is the problem that the world does not believe that God sent Jesus and he is the Messiah. That is the problem. Everything else is a symptom. And so Jesus says, let them be one just as you and I are one so that the world believes that you have sent me, that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, 
whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, before the war even broke out. And extending to when Jesus comes and makes everything right. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We will continue to put Band-Aids on the symptoms in this fallen world until we as God's people lay down our pride and arrogance and say, we will be one under the banner of Jesus Christ. And we will fight the way Jesus calls us to fight, not with the weapons of the world, but we will be faithful to him. You see, here's the thing that we have to get, that I struggle with and I have to get my head wrapped around. Don't believe what anyone tells you unless they have fully embraced the truth of what we just talked about. The truth of this fight and surrendered to the weapons Jesus has given us rather than the using the weapons of the dragon. Because while the, dra the weapons of the dragon may be effective for us for a time, it will not result in dealing with the problem that we have. So what do we do in light of Satan's defeat? I have three things that I wanna share with you briefly. Because you see, scripture is clear. It says that there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels came to fight the dragon and his army. And the dragon was defeated and he was dismissed. Next week, we'll come to the end of that story. But where we are right now, what do we do in light of Satan's defeat? Number one, we expect. We expect that the dragon will continue to do what he's always done. You know, something that's interesting to me, the dragon tried to stop the Messiah by destroying Israel through influencing Pharaoh to kill all of the children. And then the dragon again tried to stop the Messiah from being born or living to adulthood by influencing Herod to kill all the baby boys. Here's the thing. Today, we talk about the tragedy of babies and the unborn losing their lives. The dragon's been doing that for centuries. And it might sound, might have some tension with it. But that is only a symptom of what is underneath. We don't live in a unique time this has been happening, and this is part of the dragon's plan. And we all fall under that deception. But we've got to recognize that the key 
to changing what's going on around us is not to put a Band-Aid on the symptom. It is to go at the problem, which is unbelief and rejection of the Son of God who brings salvation and forgiveness and wholeness. And so we need to expect Peter says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How often do we react to difficulties as something weird's happening to us? <laughs> like Peter literally says, don't be surprised as if something strange is happening. I'm telling you right now, that's going to happen to you. <laughs> so don't be shocked. I mean, you can be upset, you can be emotional, you can be angry. Like, I'm... 10 times out of 10, I'm going to be upset when something happens to me, but I should never be surprised. It should never take me by surprise. So we need to expect that the dragon will continue to do what he's always done. Second thing is this, we are called to endure. So we endure through this. Paul says in Corinthians, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Living in the love of Jesus Christ, we can endure all things. Jesus himself says to his disciples, he says, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We are called to endure. So we can expect that the dragon will continue to be the dragon, and we know that we can endure through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally is this, expose. Expose the dragon and his plans for what they are while pursuing enlightenment and salvation for those who are deceived by him. Expose. Paul says in Ephesians, he says, therefore do not become partakers with them for at one time you, listen to what he says, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light because what does light do? Light exposes for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible for anything that becomes visible is light. And, and, and so we need to expect that the dragon will be who he is. We need to, to endure because God has given us the ability to endure and he's given us all of the tools we need. And then finally, we need to expose. We need to expose the fact that whatever people are trying and it continues not to work will never work until they've surrendered their lives to Christ because he is the fulfillment that they need and they want. This morning, Travis read a passage before we sang the song, Getting Ready. The passage was from Revelation 19. And, and what I love about the way God has revealed things to us is that he said that, that what we are preparing for, what he's preparing us for, is this marriage supper of the Lamb, which is when Jesus brings us together and we will live with him in perfect unity. What I think is incredible about that idea of the, the supper is that there's an acknowledgement that we are in 
a lifelong battle and there awaits an incredible meal celebration for when we've endured and when we come home. And I wanna read that, that passage again that Travis read earlier from Revelation 19. And, and I want us to listen and, and again hear this and think about this because this morning we're gonna again participate in communion together. And I think there's a picture here. But in John's vision in Revelation 19, it says, then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen re represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said these words of God are true. As Jesus was there that night with his disciples sitting around that table, much smaller table, but a table that no less resembled that table that we are invited to as we have endured and one day finally come home. Jesus sitting with his disciples, he took the bread and no, there's no way that his disciples weren't thinking about this as he took the bread. The many times that Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life. Those who hunger, come to me. So Jesus took the bread, the bread that sustains for the battle that we live in. And he said, this bread, symbolic of my body that's been broken, that will be broken for you. That moment that the ancient serpent strikes his heel but in that act of sacrifice and surrender, he crushes his head. Jesus says, take and remember what I did as you do this. So let's take and eat the bread together. As we take the cup, I want us to envision something this morning. Jesus says that we are being prepared for a wedding supper. That the church and Jesus will be wed and they will become one. Often at weddings, at the reception where everyone's eating, people will raise their glasses and they'll toast the married couple. As we participate in communion today, I'd like us to imagine and think about that day when we are seated at a table with Christ and we are pronounced one. And this morning, as we remember what Jesus did, that this is symbolic of his blood being poured out, 
it is also a reminder of the toast that we will all do one day. Toasting and celebrating the marriage of Jesus with his church. That we will be spotless and blameless and righteous before Christ. And we will be acceptable. And we will be with him forever. So as we take the cup, let's think both of the shedding of Jesus' blood and the toast to the marriage supper of the Lamb, that the two have become one. Let's take the cup. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint. Point. 